This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, to be among people that are on fire for you, to be encouraged. Lord, I ask that you would settle your spirit on this conference as a whole, but I also ask, Lord, that you would settle your spirit upon this room, that I may speak words that honor and glorify you. Lord, and I ask that you would open minds to hear the message that you want them to hear. Lord, thank you so much for this awesome experience. In Jesus' name, amen. My name's Scott Christensen. I come from Maine, that much you know. I am, I've been a missionary. I've been an ADRA director in Mongolia and in China. Uh, worked among the Navajo. Grew up in Loma Linda, and that was a long time ago. When I grew up, somewhere along the line, a teacher, a Sabbath school lesson, I don't know where, but somewhere along the line came this idea that sin affected the planet, the actual physical earth. Now, I don't know if that was uh, from Romans uh, 8.22. I don't know if it was from some of the writings of Ellen White. I don't know if it was another scripture. There are a number of possibilities. But somewhere along the line, the seed was planted that sin affects the actual planet and that this has something to do, in the mind of a kid, remember, this had something to do with the end times. And... and um, and I couldn't get that. I couldn't get that when I was growing up because, you know, Loma Linda, it's ringed by these mountains up to 11,000 feet, Mount San Gregorio, uh, orange trees everywhere, uh, um, seasonal uh, streams. Uh, and, and how could sin affect the mountains? How could sin affect the ocean? We'd go out to the ocean. How, how could sin affect these fields and these, these orange trees? It didn't make sense to me. How is there a connection here? You know, I knew sin caused death. There was roadkill. I saw that. My earliest memory is of, well, one of my earliest memories is of my mother screaming and her hands flying up. We were in our living room. Her hands flew up to her face, and she was, she was ironing. She screamed, and her hands flew up. The iron fell off the ironing board, and it landed face down on our very modest carpet, and there's this smoke rising. And that was my mother hearing the news that President Kennedy had been shot. And I was three years old, or about three years old. So I knew that sin caused death. I knew that it was a very bad person that did that. And growing up, getting a little older, I remember my parents reacting to the, the body counts coming out of Vietnam, just their heads in their hands, you know, oh. I knew sin caused death, but this idea that sin could affect the world, you know, it's too big, it's too beautiful, I don't get that. And that stayed in the back of my mind. Um, grew up, got married, eventually got out of the uh, gravitational field of Loma Linda, and ended up working among the Navajo Indians in New Mexico. And that was fascinating. My first uh, cross-cultural experience, it was 60 miles to the post office. It was a long ways out on the Navajo reservation. And I got to be friends with some of the Navajo Indians, talking to some of them, and especially some of the older Navajo, I really enjoyed talking to them. 
and to the extent I could with the limited, you know, with the language barrier. But one of the most fascinating conversations I had, and I began talking on this topic to more and more older Navajos, was their perception that the world was changing. And they said, oh, absolutely. The peach trees that our great-grandparents planted shriveled up and died when we were kids. And, and we tried to plant more, and they, they wouldn't grow anymore. You know, the, the whole Navajo reservation is changing. It's becoming badlands. The little gardens that we had when we were young, during the course of our lifetime, they just stopped growing. There's nothing we can do. The, the reservation has changed. Now we are entirely dependent on our monthly check from the government. And, I'm, and I said, well, what, what's that mean? And they said, well, it means it's the end of the world. The, there will be a new world created. This is the Navajo understanding of what's going on. Well, I talked to some younger Navajo, uh, and I wanted to pursue this subject. Wait a minute. So there is a spiritual impact in the Navajo understanding between the decline of the world and, and, and the end of the world. And the, the younger Navajo, who were Seventh-day Adventists, said, oh, absolutely. And we believe this too, but we don't believe it the way our grandparents do. We believe that sin affects the world, but that it is the end of the world as Christians understand it. There's a definite spiritual connection here, and we see it happening right now. And I'm scratching my head and going, okay, we, okay, we see something here. From there, from La Vida Mission, we took a hop, a skip, and a jump, and we ended up in Mongolia, the first church workers to enter Mongolia as um, ADRA director. And Mongolia was absolutely fascinating. This was 1994, a long time ago. And uh, uh, I could spend the whole session talking about how the Lord worked in Mongolia, but I, I won't, mercifully. Um, except to say that in Mongolia, I saw huge changes in the natural environment. The Gobi Desert was marching forward, is marching forward, marching north at between 15 and 20 kilometers a year. Big deal, right? A desert gets bigger, so what? Especially you say, so what in Mongolia where there's just a few million people and it's this large country and there are nomads. You think nomads, they can move, so the desert's advancing, so what? Except that in Mongolia, these people are nomads, yes, but they go to the same place every year. And they live about 20 miles apart. They have to live about 20 miles apart because their, their herds, their animals, that's all they've got. They eat the meat, they drink the milk, they use the fiber, they burn the fuel, they dung. They live off their animals, and there's so little grass in Mongolia that those animals need a huge area to graze over. If they don't have that area, these people don't live, period. So what happens in Mongolia when the desert marches north is that people who have always gone to the same place, families who have gone to the same place for hundreds of years, they'll spend three months here, six months here during the winter, three months here. They'll move to three, sometimes four places a year. Uh, when, when the desert marches north, they have to move to some place they haven't been. And even though the population is thin, all the places are taken. So suddenly they're 10 miles from their neighbor. They're taking their neighbor's grass. What happens? Well, in the middle of the night, gasoline gets poured on their felt tent called a gear. Knife fights start. People are forced to abandon their nomadic lifestyle and go to the city. You saw social stress. You saw conflict. You saw fighting. You saw death because people were forced to move. And so I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, 
Mongolia really is changing. It's measurable. And we're seeing conflict, and we're seeing hunger, and we're seeing strife. This is interesting. Well, that's not the only thing we saw. In Mongolia, while I was there, towards the end of our time there, we left in 1999, snowstorms started to come. Well, I'm from Maine, you're from North Dakota, snowstorms, like, so what? You know, if it's less than 10 inches, we just keep driving in it and we just ignore it up in Maine. But here's the thing. In Mongolia, they get a significant snowstorm maybe once every 10 years. And by significant, I mean four to six inches. Okay? Now, Mongolia is the coldest capital city in the world. While we were there, we saw 45 degrees below zero. And whether you do that in Fahrenheit or Celsius, it doesn't matter because that's where the scales meet, is 44 below. But um, in Mongolia, remember, all of these nomads out there, uh, a couple million of them, living off their animals, what happens is when they get a snowstorm, the animals have to, have to uh, um, paw at the ground, move the snow, and then if they find any grass, they eat that. But what happens is it's a negative caloric effort. They move the snow, but they spend more energy moving the snow than they get back in dry grass during the winter. So what happens is the animals starve to death when you get a big snowstorm. And these are people who live, they don't have a Jeep, they're out in the middle of nowhere, there's no hay, there's no helicopter to rescue them, there's nothing like that. Well, one snowstorm every 10 years, okay, but they started getting two, three, four, five snowstorms a year. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Mongolians had to move from the countryside. They got to the point where they were burning their little bit of furniture. Nomads don't have much. And when they're burning it to keep warm because there's no more animals, because there's no more manure, that's the fullest extent of desperation. And these are people in March when it's still 20 degrees below zero, and they're a thousand kilometers from the capital city or from anyone that can help them. I mean, these are, this is true desperation. So we saw hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Mongolians move to the one city, the capital city in Mongolia, and throw themselves on the mercy of distant relatives who had no mercy. We saw prostitution rates skyrocket. Um, it's, it, it doesn't sound nice to talk about it, but in the developing world and in, the, in, in international development, one of the uh, criteria. One of the things that you monitor are prostitution rates. ADRA doesn't do that, but e development economists, you know, what are things worth and how desperate is this country? And when it's somewhere between two and five dollars a night, you know it's extremely desperate. And uh, this is one of the, I mean, it was, it was terrible. We saw tremendous prostitution. We saw tremendous crime. We saw children being sold. Anything horrible that you can imagine was going on. And I, and I don't want to spend too much time on that, but it was, it was terrible. We saw uh, a tremendous conflict. We saw a tremendous breakdown in society. We saw a disease. Um, uh, it was suffering. We saw terrible, terrible things. And so I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, we've got changes in the physical world. We've got a tremendous impact on society. And we've got a... a Tremendous increase in the impact of sin, and we've got conflict, and we've got disease. From Mongolia, I moved to China uh, and was the director of ADRA there, and it was a huge eye-opener. I went from a country of about 3 million to a country of 1.3 billion. It was a big change. And in China, it was a whole different ball of wax because 
it was a matter of resources under constant, constant pressure. The best way I can describe it is 1.3 billion people milking a cow 24 hours a day because they had to have the milk regardless of what happened to the cow. Uh, uh, just to give you one example, I went out to, uh, I was asked by the government to go out to a far province and talk to some farmers and I was told they need help with their agriculture project. They need help with water and I, I, I didn't want to go but the government in China you kind of cooperate with them. Huh. So I went out and talked to these farmers and the farmers said we need help buying pumps for our water. And this was uh, not just a few farmers, this was a big cooperative over a large area. And, and I talked to the farmers and I said, well, you know, what, what do you mean, what's, what's going on? And they said, well, about 15 years ago we started irrigating and it was fantastic. You know, the plants, we just had so much more production. And the government, we have to have production because our food supply is very stressed. And so we irrigated, but then the water level went down. And we had these 30-meter wells, and the water level went down, and then we put in new pumps, and we drilled new wells, and the water level went down. Well, long story short, they said the water is about uh, 600 meters down, and we need massive pumps to, you know, I mean, the size of locomotive engines. We need these massive pumps to bring this water up. And I said, well, we don't do that. What are you going to do if you can't get the water? And they said, well... We're, we're just going to go to the city and work. No problem. And so I'm looking at this. On the way back, I stopped in a, uh, a village, a Chinese village, and I was, I, I was taken there by the local government. And they said, can you help us move the village? And I said, what do you mean move the village? And they said, well, over here uh, in these fields, we were making bricks, and when that happens, the coal burning and scraping off the topsoil, it makes it so it's not good. We can't grow there anymore, and we didn't kind of realize that. That's useless land, but underneath the village is good soil, and we need to move all the buildings over there so we can farm this land. And that's how tight things were in China in terms of producing food. It was a totally different concept, and I was struggling to get my mind around this, when I went for a, uh, a visit to a far province with a very unique man. He is a member of the People's Congress. That's extremely elite in China. He is uh, the owner of a number of companies. He's a multi-multi-millionaire. And he's an Adventist. And he's Chinese. I mean, that's not a big group of people. He's a very unique man, really neat. And we were on the plane. And he told me a story. He said, you know, we're flying over a province right now. He said, back, back when I was young in the Cultural Revolution, I was sent to this province from Beijing. I was in Beijing. I was a college student. And they made me go out there because in the Cultural Revolution, you know, I was educated. I was the bad guy. And they made me go out to this village and learn from the farmers. He said, the problem was that the farmers did not want to see me. They, I was so unwelcome in that village because I didn't know how to farm, I wasn't much help, and they had to feed me. He said, those people beat me, they resented me, they treated me very poorly. He said, I probably would have died, except there was one person there who was worse off than me, a young woman from Beijing who was sent out, same situation. He said, we weren't allowed to talk, but sometimes, sometimes we would sneak off at night into the forest 
We wouldn't even hardly talk. We would just hold each other and cry. We were that desperate. We were that miserable. We were that close to just giving up. And he said, if it wasn't for those forests, I would have died. He said, actually, we're flying over that province. We're probably over that village now. And I looked out the window. I had the window seat. The air in China is always terrible. But on that particular day, I could see some of the ground. And I'm looking out, and I see villages, and I see roads, and I see lots and lots of fields. I saw not one tree. I said, no, I think you're mistaken. Uh, the, um, you know, uh, there's no trees down there. And he leaned over me, and he looked out the window, and he looked to the mountains in the distance, and he looked around, got his bearings, and he says, no, we're, we're right over that village. We're right over that area. And I said, well, what happened to the trees? And he said, oh, we had to cut them all down. An entire province, larger than estates, and they had to cut all the trees down. He said, we needed the land to produce food. Well, interestingly enough, the same place where they cut all the trees down was the same place where the water table was sinking. And so going from Mongolia to China, I saw resource pressure. And I began to, to study this more and more. What's going on in the world? What's going on naturally? What's going on from, from man's society and his needs? And I thought, you know, if there's something going on that's this big that the world is actually changing, and that if it's affecting humans everywhere, and it's beginning to erode society, how could that not be part of the end times? How could that not be in the great controversy? How could that not be in scripture? Well, it is in the great controversy. It is in scripture. And that's what we're going to be studying in these six sessions. I know that you folks have a choice of 20 different seminars. You'll probably only go to one of any one, uh, but hopefully you'll continue to listen to this on Audioverse. Um, everything on earth happens in the context of the great controversy. I challenge you to come up with one thing that is not affected on earth that is not affected by the context of the great controversy. We uh, live our lives in ignorance, largely in ignorance of this fact, that we are at the middle of this tremendous battle that's going on, that everything, everything, everything is affected by it, including our physical planet. And yet, we're largely asleep. Um, being asleep, we don't have... You know, we're not watching for the signs that are all around us. And this is one thing that I hope you take away this session, certainly the next session, uh, that we can see prophecy being fulfilled. There's a direct chain between what's going on, the, the cause and effect of sin, and the prophecy-fulfilling events that are happening right now that we can chart and graph. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. But we're seeing prophecy being fulfilled in real time around us, and we don't even notice it. So we're going to be talking about the effect of sin on the physical world. We're going to be talking about how the instability in the physical world causes instability in human society, including disasters, disease. We're going to be talking about the instability in society causing conflict, and then again you get disease and pestilence and famine. Is any of this sounding familiar? We're going to be talking about connecting the dots between original sin and what is going on in the earth and what is going on in society and what's going on right in front of our eyes that Christ himself told us about.
Um, toward the end, we're going to be talking about what we can do or what we should be doing right now, especially within this context. We're going to be talking about what a realistic level of engagement is. We don't have the sense of urgency that the world around us indicates we should have. This is the anchor text, Christ himself speaking, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. In later sessions, we're going to be unpacking that verse significantly, session five. In session four, we're going to go into great detail on what Christ said in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13 and in Luke 21, parallel chapters. And you probably haven't heard that message before. So the problem is, one of the problems is, how do you define, you know, we're talking about the effect of sin on the planet, how do you define sin? If you are a physicist, which is a small group of people, and if you are a physicist who, uh, who studies antimatter, which is a much, much smaller group of people, antimatter which, touches every, which destroys everything it touches, if you have that framework of understanding, if you have that vocabulary, then you're, then you're probably in a good position to discuss sin. If, on the other hand, you are a physician, and a virologist, and you understand how uh, a disease spreads, especially a disease that kills everything that it touches, then you have a good understanding and a good vocabulary for discussing sin. For the rest of us, it's kind of difficult because we live in an additive world. We live talking about things that, that are positive, things that add, things that increase, and not things that are completely negative. But sin is only completely negative. It only corrodes, decays, subtracts. Sin never adds, despite the fact that Satan has this great marketing plan that says that it does. But we're going to try. We're going to try and talk about sin completely negative. And we're going to talk about the cumulative effect of sin on the planet. Um, we know that the ultimate consequence of sin is death. We know that. But we apply that to animals. We apply it to humans. We apply it to plants. We've never applied it to the earth and its natural systems, what God created during creation week. But if all the pieces of what God created are dying, then are not the large systems that God created dying? Um, and we know from the Bible, however, that sin is not, the consequences of sin are not limited to man. For we know that the whole of creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together, until now. Ellen White said it is because of man's sin that the whole of creation groans in pain. Okay, so to, to really get this, we've got to go back. Got to go back to creation week. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, right? Oh, come on. Right? <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm not one of these amen guys, but every once in a while, I'm going to see if you guys are awake. Okay, let's go through this. God said, let there be light, Right? So, amazing things happen during creation week, and God starts by creating light? Was he putting in a half day just to get started? I mean, this seems like a very simple thing, right? What, was he starting slow? 
I mean, he, he created the sun, moon, and stars in one day, and here we've got light. It seems like a very small thing. It seems like a trivial beginning, but that's not quite actually what the verse says. God created light, and in the morning and the evening were the first day. Well, if you have light and you have time, the morning and evening were the first day, and you've intertwined them, that's something that Einstein has a tremendous amount to say about. He's very interested in that. Actually, if you have light and you have time and you have intertwined them, you have de facto created the laws of physics. You've created the framework and structure within which creation will function. It's not obvious. You have to look at it and ponder it, but it's there. God, the master builder, laid down this amazing, solid foundation first that he would build creation on. And he started right, and he did everything right. God divided the waters, the old, the, uh, the old King James Version, divided the waters above from the waters below. God created systems. He created our atmosphere, the waters above, he created our hydrosphere, which is all the water that is not frozen. The frozen water is our cryosphere, and I won't be talking much about that. God created this ex extremely complex atmosphere, layer upon layer. Come on in, guys, if you want. Layer upon layer upon layer of gases that, that uh, give us the right amount of radi radiation, that, that keep the heat in, that keep... You know, they, the, uh, there's thermal layers, there's, there's cycling of, uh, well, anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on. Really complex. And he created our um, hydrosphere, lakes, rivers, oceans, all of that. Again, an extraordinary complex system. And these are sister systems. He created them in one day. These are constantly interacting. There's thermal exchanges, there's gas exchanges, there's ionic exchanges. There's all of this stuff going on constantly, 24 hours a day, all around the world. These two systems are joined at the hip, and that becomes important later. Uh, if you, who you are determines what you see in this picture. Now, when I speak out in Arizona or California or someplace out in the dry west, people look at this picture. I put this picture up and people go, ooh, especially in the summertime. You know, when they're used to seeing the hills burning. And they'll look all that green. They'll go, wow. I'm from Maine. And uh, when I give this talk in northern New England, there's always somebody, there's always a logger in the audience who's calculating the number of truckloads of trees that you can get out of that. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's very normal for where I am. That's how these guys make their livings. And we got, we got way more trees than people. Um, you want cheap real estate, move to Maine. Uh, if you, uh, my wife would look at this picture and she would say, look at that trail. Look at that trail that goes through there. Uh, get, saddle up my horse, Scott. I'm going to go for a ride. Somebody else would look at this and say, I need a blanket and a book and uh, maybe some bread and cheese. And I'm, I'm you know, vegan cheese, of course. And, and I'm all set. Others would say, Okay, Kawasaki 125, I'm just going to lay the biggest spray around that corner. This is going to be great. And then there's a small group of people, naturalists, geeks, who would look at this picture and they would say, Wow, 
Look at that leaf decay. Think of the trillions and trillions and trillions of microorganisms. Look at those massive trees. Look at the gas exchange, the photosynthesis. Wow, look at the, the, the tap roots must be so deep. Look at the size of those trees. And they're going down and they're bringing up the alkali metals, the potassium, calcium, magnesium. And they're cycling it through the leaves. And all this stuff is going on. Wow! Geeks. But they're right. It's an enormously complex system that God created, and it's built. It wouldn't do it without the, the atmosphere. It couldn't do it without the hydrosphere. Layer upon layer of astonishing complexity is being built. But there's something else that goes on here. God created grass, trees, and all plants, and it was good. God is evaluating his work and says that it's good. How good is good for God? Do you agree it's perfect? Perfect. M.C. Escher, God created sea life and birds. Notice that God created in one day the life forms that would populate the sister systems, the, uh, the atmosphere and the hydrosphere. So, uh, created sea life and birds, and it was good. Again, he assesses his work. I mean, if, if God says it's good, it's got to be really good. I used to have a picture of a star-nosed mole here. I, but my wife loves horses, and so to, to appease her, you married guys know how this works, there's a horse. God created land creatures which needed the atmosphere, which needed the hydrosphere, which needed the plant uh, the, a kingdom that was created, all of that. Again, God's building his pyramid of life, and it was good. God created man in his own image. And I've heard a couple times people say, and and this was the peak of creation. Well, you know, it's hard to argue with that um, because we were created in the image of God, but that's not where God chose to assess his creation. It was actually after he was done. And God saw everything he had made, and it was, oh, wait a minute. Very good? Okay, so this is very perfect? What's going on here? God saw everything he made, and it was very good. Well, here's what went on. Imagine that God is a master watchmaker, and he's going to make the most astonishing pocket watch you've ever seen. Something God is worthy of making, or something's worthy of being made by God, excuse me. And, and so he, he makes the case out of solid gold, and it's just, it's just astonishing. And he looks at it and says, it's good. And then he makes the crystal, he makes the stem, he, he makes the, the spring, he makes the winder, he makes all of the fine little pieces, these gears that mesh together that are so astonishingly complex. And after each one, he says, it's good. He puts it all together and winds it up. And when his creation is completely intermeshed and works together perfectly, it's very good. That's how God created the world. God created in his creation week physics, the atmospheric system, oceans, climate system, freshwater production, storage, food production, and yes, he even created human civilization and health. He told us what to do, and he told us what to eat before the end of the first chapter of Genesis. People say to me, you Adventists, why are you so hung up on food? And I say, hey, 
I don't know. Why is God so hung up on food? Let's go to the very first chapter of Genesis. Come on. He told us right there. He created human civilization and health. We're going to be looking at these five systems that are bookend, bookended. Atmosphere, oceans, climate, freshwater, food production. During the course of this seminar, we're going to look at each one of these briefly. Um, because every one of those five systems that God created in perfection is in steep and accelerating decline today as a result of sin. The world in which you live, the society in which you live, is built on a world that is crumbling, is completely dependent upon these systems that God created to sustain life on earth. We think in our society, with our cars and our planes, the planes that took me here yesterday, with our complex distribution systems, with our complex society that, we'll live, that we live in, I'll cover that later, in session five, I think. Um, we think that nature is out there, but it's not. It's right under our feet, and it's crumbling. And that is driving the fulfillment of prophecy, limited prophecy. I'm not talking revelation here. I'm talking a Matthew 24, 6 through 8, and parallel verses in Mark and Luke. There are billions that are imperiled. Probably not you. Or if you, probably very late in the process. But there are billions of people that make less, 3.5 billion, that make less than $2 a day. 3.5 billion people that make less than $2 a day. And they are already, uh, uh, to an astonishing degree, and to a degree which we are not aware of, they are already feeling the effects of this. Hugely. I'll be covering that later. So we went from perfection to complete dysfunction. What happened? Well, you know what happened. I mean, you're here, so that's kind of a, it's kind of a minimum base of knowledge. I speak to some audiences who have no idea. This, by the way, is a fairly popular presentation with secular minds. And um, we're trying to work to make it a bridge to pull them into uh, prophecy seminars. If you have a mind to, please include that in your prayers, because there are many who would never look at the Bible uh, otherwise. Anyway... So man sinned, Satan gained significant control over the earth. Sin separates creation from its creator, and the consequence of that is death. Um, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 67. Not only man, but the earth had by sin come under the power of the wicked one. When man became Satan's captive, the dominion which he held passed to his conqueror. Thus Satan became the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So we know that Satan is in rebellion. Uh, Satan's rebellion was to be a lesson through all coming ages, a perpetual testimony to the nature of sin and its terrible results. It would testify that with the existence of God's government is bound up the well-being of all creatures he has made. When the earth is not part of God's government, when it's been separated and Satan has usurped, there's consequences that happen to man, to beast, and to the planet itself. And that is part of the lesson of the great controversy. And it's a lesson that is going to be drawn in starker and starker relief in the time immediately ahead of us because it's happening right now. So here's the logic chain. Satan's in rebellion. Rebellion is sin. Sin is separation from God. Separation from God is death. And everything that God created, I would say with the exception of the physical laws, is subject to death because of sin, including these massive systems that he created to sustain life on this earth that we're not even aware of on a day-to-day -day basis. 
If you look on the internet for a picture of a highly corroded watch, this is all I could find. If you do better, send, me, send one to me. Send me a picture of whatever you find. If the earth was created in perfection, this is where it is now, barely grinding on. I'm an environmentalist in the sense that I can hardly wait to see the earth created new. It's going to be astonishing. I'm not an environmentalist in the sense that we need to save this earth. I realize that's heresy with some. I, we can't save this earth. All we can do is save souls. And that's where I'm putting my energy. Um, there was a plan, however, and mind you, it's not limited to man. Not only had man, but the earth had by sin come under the power of the wicked one and was to be restored by the plan of redemption. We don't even think about this earth that God created, made the morning stars sing, heaven was astonished, and God is very upset about what's happened to his earth. Go to Revelations, uh, and I will destroy those who destroy the earth. You know, it's actually pretty obvious. It's the most memorized text in the Christian world. What is it? For God so loved the... And you know, we always think he means man. Well, he does, but not just man. For God so loved the world. And both those who accept him and his world uh, will be transformed. Actually, the world will be destroyed and recreated, so if you want to be very technical. So this is uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 62. The atmosphere, once so mild... And uniform in temperature was now subject to marked changes, and the Lord mercifully provided them with a garment of skins as a protection from the extremes of heat and cold. Now, this is the same day they sinned, the same day, and this massive part of the earth, the climate system was affected by sin immediately, immediately. Did God give them, them, them covering? because they needed to be modest, because they're aware of their sin? Yes, but he gave them skins instead of silk or something else. He gave them skins as protection from the extremes of heat and cold. The effect on the physical world of sin was immediate. So what has happened? What has sin done to God's earth? Well, we're going to, ah, I hope, 45 minutes has passed. Maybe I've zipped through that too quickly. Uh, um, I might have. <laughs> I have to slow down. Sorry, I'm used to giving this in three sessions, and to do that, I have to zip through things. In our, my next session, I'm going to start going through the physical systems of the earth one by one, and I'm going to start with food production. Do you want me to just keep going because I'm assuming that almost everyone here is going to go to a different seminar next time, right? So you want me to just go on? Okay. That works for me. Okay. I want to talk about our food production system, and I'm going to try and drive to, to one point here. Uh, if someone could watch the clock and just shout out that it's 9.45 when we get there, I would really appreciate that. I'm going to start with food production system because uh, it's the canary in the coal mine. It's what's amazing that's going on on the planet right now, right before our eyes that we don't see. And the food production system, actually soil, 
it's, it's made up of a lot of subsystems. It's made up of those trillions and trillions of microorganisms. It's, it's, it's made up of, uh, obviously it's affected by our atmospheric system and water production, uh, fresh water system and everything else. But it is also its own discrete system. And we have destroyed on a global basis what God created. Interestingly enough, God focused intensely on food production because there is a solid uh, link between man, the, the effort man has to put into to get food and sinfulness on the planet. There is the curse of Adam. He had to work by the sweat of his brow to get food. Used to be, they just put out their hand. Then there was the curse of Cain, and the earth will not yield her bounty. And then there was the curse of Moses, this planet where a, it didn't rain. A mist came up at night. Hydroponics is the closest thing I can think of. This astonishingly productive planet was rendered, rendered essentially unproductive. In the last two generations, we have essentially overcome those three curses by engaging in industrial agriculture, which is powered by oil. If it wasn't for oil, if we had to stop using oil right now in our global agriculture system, we would have a 95% reduction in harvest. 95% reduction. Interesting book, uh, Eating Fossil Fuels. Oil is food. We use six, depending on who you listen to, between six and nine calories of oil to put one calorie of food on our plate in the developed world, not the undeveloped world. But in the developed world, we use six to nine calories of oil to put one calorie of food on our plate. That includes transportation, that includes packaging, that includes refrigeration where necessary, or canning, or whatever. That, excuse me, that includes preparation. That includes, uh, obviously, the, the hydrocarbon fertilizers and hydrocarbon pesticides and all the work in the field and all of that stuff. And then, insanely, when we have all of that oil embodied in our food, we turn our food into oil. We turn it into fuels. That they do that in Brazil. They do it in the U.S. In Brazil, it makes sense because they're turning sugarcane into alcohol. In the U.S., we're just insane because this is food that, before we turned it into oil, fed the rest of the world um, and has put a lot of pressure. Here is our population spike. Um, who can tell me what happened right around 1800? 1750, 1800, 1850, you people have a good grasp of history. What happened? I think I heard it. Say it, say it louder. Industrial Revolution. You get an A. Absolutely fantastic. Started off with factories beside a river with the wheel turning from the water, but went very quickly to coal and went from there to oil. Without Industrial Revolution allowing us to transport and store and prepare and package food, we, we wouldn't be able to sustain our population, but we went from there to, uh, we took the next step, feeding plants and protecting them from, from pests using oil-based products. Uh, how many of you have heard of, ah, I'm getting ahead. In the end, we destroyed our soil. And this is the history of man. We think in sinful man, we've got this really great idea. We're so smart, and it ends up absolutely scuppering us. We, we create our own fate. Um, how many of you have heard of the Green Revolution? 
Oh, well, don't worry about it. Back in the 1960s, when I was just a little kid, some really smart people got together and they said, we are in such a problem. The whole world is imperiled. We've got 3.5 billion people and we can't feed them all. And they were right. The world was heading at high speed for a brick wall. And they said, we've got to get together. We've got to cooperate. We've got to have the United Nations involved. We've got to have all the universities involved. We have got to create better strains of plants. We have got to give everyone fertilizer. We've got to give everyone pesticides. And they, they did. And it worked. They created strains of plants which are much, much, much more productive. And that's, that's what you're eating today. These strains of plants are great, but they require three times as much water. And they require far more fertilizer. They don't grow in regular soil. They don't grow in what God created. Or at least they, they don't give their production without these artificial inputs. And so all over the world, fertilizer was used. And in the developing world, it's, it's a real problem with medicine. If one pill is good, two pills are great, and three pills is fantastic. And it's the same with fertilizer, and it's the same with pesticides. And so you had this over-application of everything. I'm going to go back to this slide. And what happened was you had salts from the fertilizer building up year after year until the plants could hardly grow. But then you could solve that problem by putting on more fertilizer and putting on a tremendous amount of fertilizer, but it got to the point where it just crashed and you could actually see the salt. What started out as living, these living microorganisms that released the nutrients, these, these uh, funguses that, that helped scavenge nutrients that had a symbiotic relationship with the plant, all of this enormously complex stuff going on in soil ends up as dirt. There's a huge difference between the two. We're losing 22 million acres a year of soil, and that's accelerating. We're going to be losing a lot more while our population continues to grow. So we replaced, I'm a horse owner. This, to me, is not ugly. That's, that's, a, that's a healthy horse poop, if you want to know. That horse is in good shape. So we replaced this with this. We changed the equation, and what happened? We were able to have enormous population growth because we were able to produce food very cheaply. Those days are over, by the way. We'll look at that in a minute. But we went from 3.5 billion people on the basis of cheap food to more than 7 billion people now. And we're heading at 100 miles an hour for a brick wall. And that's important. Rain with irrigation, et cetera, et cetera. And this is what we got. And it's great. It was great while it lasted. We're so smart. Depleting our resources. We created superbugs and superweeds. We put on a lot of pesticides. Back in the 1960s, we were losing 23% of our crops to bugs and weeds. Today, we're losing 26% of our crops to bugs and weeds, and we are using 50 times as much pesticides that is 100 times as strong. Uh, pesticides and herbicides. As with antibiotics, we have no idea what we're going to do because we're about to lose this battle big time, which... Um, gets us into famine, which gets us into pestilence, all these other things. I want, what time is it? Ninth, okay, I think I have time. Uh, there's one critical point I want to make that's halfway through this before you go. So, climate shifts. Now take a look, this is back in 1980, and we have 300 disasters by storms, by floods, 
uh, and by um, extreme temperatures, drought, forest fire, you got meteorological, hydrological, and climatological events with the different colors there. Back in 1980, okay, just 33, 34 years ago, we're having 300, now we have 900. In one of my later presentations, I'm going to talk about what Ellen White said about disasters preceding the Sunday Law. And this becomes a very important slide, because we're watching it happen. We're watching, and this rate of slope is increasing. It's becoming exponential. So we're having, climate, we're having yields suppressed, and we're, we're running these two races. You know, we're trying to um, not deplete the soil now, and we're trying to increase yields, and at the same time, we've got a growing population. So our yields, are the, the curve is flattening and beginning to tail off, and, but we're losing more land. The yield is on a per hectare, per acre basis, uh, but of course that's distorted when you're losing tremendous amounts of land every year. And now we get into the point that I really want to make because it connects us, everything I'm saying with scripture and it's not a useful presentation without that. Cereal global food crisis, and I don't mean cereal with a C. This going back to 1990, uh, you can look at this price chart, by the way, going back to 1960. It doesn't change a whole lot. Um, fascinating. We have, in the modern era, uh, what scientists are saying is three food price spikes. My, my uh, laser doesn't work, so, oops, sorry. No, sorry. Um, three food price spikes. This is one. This, if you agree with them, is two. And this is quite certainly three. I look at it really as two food price spikes. Uh, and you didn't notice these. You didn't notice these. Now, look at this. You go from a food basis of maybe 100, okay, back in 02 when the price of oil was uh, $21 a barrel. And you can use this, by the way, as a proxy for oil prices because the link between oil prices and food prices is iron, unbreakable. But here was the lowest point in real economic terms of the food price, okay? I mean, it was, it was food was cheap. But then we climbed along with oil, spiked here and spiked here. And you didn't notice. And the reason you didn't notice is because when you go out and buy a box of cornflakes, you're getting a handful of corn and a handful of sugar. Real GMO corn, by the way. <laughs> Real garbage. And you're paying four bucks. I mean, you're paying four bucks. And you're paying only a little for that corn and only a little for that sugar. The rest is luxury housing for Tony the Tiger and transportation and marketing and all this stuff. When you live and you are making $2 a day or less, 3.5 billion people, some of whom are making less than a dollar a day, more than a billion making less than a dollar a day, and the, food, and the price of food uh, more than doubles which is what happened from here to there. The price of food at least doubles. Then instead of buying a handful of corn and a handful of sugar, you can only afford one handful. And you notice. In the meantime, your cornflakes went from $4 to $4.20, and on you go. But you're not one of the 3.5 billion people who's being incredibly stressed right now, as we speak. And if this continues, we'll be enormously threatened. Oh, I gotta. 
make it go away before I can advance the slide. This is from an organization out of uh, Boston uh, called the uh, NECSI, New England Complex Systems Institute. Um, it's, a it's a cooperation between Harvard and MIT, really, really smart guys. And what you're looking at here is the first food spike, second if you want to call it that, third food spike. And these lines are um, rebellions, governments being overthrown, huge food riots, they didn't chart minor stuff. So you got Burundi here with one death, one that falls here. But what's really interesting is that uh, when you get spikes in food prices, people who are desperate become extremely desperate and they become extremely unsatisfied to the point where they will overthrow their government. And nations who are extremely desperate will go to war with other nations. The entire Arab uh, Spring, it's been conclusively proven, was by people who were really unhappy with their governments, yes but people who were able to live until food prices spiked and they, uh, they rebelled. Now up there it has Syria with 900 deaths. You can tell that this is very old. Uh, Syrian deaths are well over 100,000 now. And here's the thing. Um, back in 2006, here, in the Middle East, started this extraordinary uh, drought. And it went on and on and on. And people in Syria, people in the other parts of the Middle East, but people in Ground Zero Syria, they were, um, uh, you know, they had to make these really tough decisions. Do we sell the animals? Because they just forage in the hills. Do we buy seed with the little bit of money we have left? These are subsistence farmers. Year after year after year, the drought continued. The earth was actually changing. The drought has largely continued. Until things got so bad and they were so desperate that some of them started to rebel in Syria, and those people were lined up against a wall and shot, and now we have a civil war with more than 100,000 people dead, millions of refugees, people starving, governments in Lebanon and Jordan and other neighboring countries um, in disarray, a regional war between the US, with the US and Israel on one side, and sometimes Turkey, and Iraq and Iran uh, on the other side, allied with Syria, we're, what we're seeing is wars and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence. What we are seeing in just that one microcosm, and I can point to many, is the effect of sin and prophecy being fulfilled before our eyes. When we stop looking at our entertainments, when we stop paying attention to all of this fakery, that Satan puts around us to, to uh, distract us, we begin to see that Christ's prophecy is being fulfilled in real time before our eyes and we're asleep. And if you look at what's going on and you look at the exponential increase, immediately ahead of us, you see that people will not just be suffering, but like many in Syria, will be dying. And are we doing everything we can to reach those people with the gospel. We can't save them. 3.5 billion people making less than $2 a day. I'm not saying the work of address should not continue, but I am saying that we do not have an appropriate sense of urgency 
for a people who have been given the great controversy and have everything we need to understand this, but who are asleep. Thank you for your attention. If you want to listen to the rest of this on Audioverse, I invite you to. Uh, are there any questions? I am. I'll be covering this part. I'll be backing up and covering this in the next session more slowly so that I don't run through it all <laughs> in 25 minutes. I've got to pace myself, throw more information in. Yes, I'm, this is in six sessions, and you've seen 1.25 sessions. Yes? Oh, that's right. I've got a book. Um, my book covers much more than, the, uh, than I do here. And it's downstairs at the uh, Adventist Book Center display. Well, not downstairs, but over in the ballroom. And um, appallingly, they, they stocked 150 copies, which is probably more than they'll sell. So I'm supposed to push the book. There's a book on LLBN. There is, in March, a television series coming out. Um, and in uh, March also, from Review and Herald, there's a DVD with this six-session presentation, the whole enchilada, that's coming out. Uh, and if you have an interest or you want to present it to someone else. And as I say, Adventists who have gone out of the church or those who are secular-minded, many among them respond to this, who don't respond to other things. And praise the Lord, that thrills me. Another question? Any other questions? Well, if you have a question you want to uh, you know, approach me um, afterward, great. Otherwise, thank you very much for coming and God bless you. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.